Let's turn in our Bibles this morning to Acts chapter 4. We've been looking at the basics of the Christian life and the basics of the church life. Last week we looked at the start of the church as recorded in Acts chapter 2. and The title of that message was The Basics of Church Life. This morning I'd like us to look at these, some of the verses in Acts 4, several of them. And we'll learn seven more things that characterize the early church. We'll call this The Basics of Church Life Part 2. Or part three, if you're in John Thompson's Sunday School this morning. Uh, seven character he was in Acts chapter four as well. Uh, seven characteristics of, early, of the early church. Let's review what already has taken place in the book of Acts. In chapter two, Peter preached a sermon. Those who had come to Jerusalem for Pentecost were there. 3,000 people were saved, were baptized, and were added to the church. I think that's a pretty blessed sermon that Peter preached. Uh, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, which was the Lord's Supper, and in prayers. In chapter 3, Peter and John met a lame man at the temple gate. Peter said, silver and gold have I none. He was a good Baptist preacher. But such as I have, give I thee. That is, Baptist preacher shouldn't be known for having silver and gold. Uh, but he said, in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And God healed him. And Peter brought another message. And he called people to repent and to be converted. And 5,000 men responded to the invitation. They were saved, they were baptized, they were added to the church. And so through two sermons and through the work of the Holy Spirit and through the prayers of this early church, God started a, a body of the believers. The, the early church was started. Birthday is, uh, Pentecost is called the birthday of the church. What a wonderful beginning. Whenever God is at work, however... Satan will try to destroy that work or to hinder it. And that's what happened. The first seven characteristics that uh, we can expect from uh, a church that patterns itself after the early church is that we can expect opposition. The church can ex expect to face opposition. Let's read uh, verses 1 through 3, and we'll then add on verse 4 as we go through this matter of opposition. And as they spake unto the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, being grieved that they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in hold unto the next day, for it was now eventide. Notice the animosity. Who was it that got upset? The priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees. The priests were, uh, most of them were already Sadducees. The captain of the temple guard, it was his job to maintain order in the temple precinct. The Sadducees uh, were familiar with us they in that they denied the existence of angels and the resurrection of the dead. They were also a very wealthy elite group. They wanted to maintain status quo. Many of them were loyal to the Roman government. What did they do? They came upon them, that is Peter and John. They laid hands on them and they put them in hold until the following day. Why did they do that? Why did they react that way? Verse 2 says they were grieved. The word grieved there is to be worried. Literally, it means to toil through. That is, they were working through what was going to be the outcome of what was going on now. And they, they were filled with anxiety because of that. Why? They taught the people. They preached the resurrection through Jesus. They're probably jealous that uh, they were... The people were responding in such a, a, a huge way to what these men were preaching. After all, 
they were the ones who were guardians of the organized national religion of Israel, not these fishermen from Galilee, not these ordinary men. Notice in verse 4, the opposition didn't deter what God was doing. Howbeit many of them which heard the word believed, and the number of the men was about 5,000. The word howbeit there is, it lets us know it's in spite of the opposition, in spite of the persecution. Opposition can never hinder the growth of the church. It can never hinder what God is going to do. The fact in, can be argued that persecution increases the spread of the church, increases its growth. Tertullian, who died in 220 AD, wrote, The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. <laughs> George Evince was a Baptist preacher in Russia who faced persecution and imprisonment in Soviet Russia. His father was murdered for his faith in Christ. Georgie was expelled in 1979. That was the year that I heard him preach in chapel at Bob Jones University. His text was John 12:24. And as I, as I went home after that chapel message, I was impacted by that, the, the poignancy of that verse that I'd never noticed before. It says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. And he tied that into what was going on in the church in Russia. Things haven't changed. We as a church can expect persecution today, opposition. In the last two years, churches around the world have faced increasing governmental controls. They want to tell us when we can worship, how we can worship. There's a growing cultural animosity towards believers, towards biblical truth. If you talk anything about God's design for the home and family, you're going against what the norms of our society are teaching. The sanctity of human life relative to abortion and euthanasia. Persecution, opposition, are not anything new to believers. Isaac Watts wrote in 1721, the third stanza, he asked three rhetorical questions. Are there no foes for me to face? Must I not stem the flow or the flood? Is this vile world a friend to grace to help me on to God? No, it's not. The rhetorical question has, a, has an obvious answer. This is not a, the world is not a friend to God. So number one, the early church faced opposition, and if we're going to live like the early church lived, we can, face, we can expect to face opposition as well. Secondly, the church must be involved in fervent prayer. Let's look at Acts 4.31, go toward the end of the chapter. We'll look at just the first phrase of verse 31. And when they prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together. They were assembled together. That tells me that it was a local meeting. They prayed, the place was shaken. When we first started in ministry, I was a pastor of a deaf church in Burbank, California, Calvary Bible Deaf Church. I preached my first message there was Acts chapter 4, verse 31. And during the service, there was an earthquake. Uh, it was more of a welcome to Southern California than it was a spiritual awakening. But the place was shaken. I think it's important to notice here that the di disciples were not the ones who caused this. 
The verb is in the passive voice. It was shaken. Someone else was doing the shaking. God was at work. What did these disciples do? Well, they assembled together. They prayed. They didn't sit down and talk about how they could build a church. They didn't uh, have uh, look at the church as a business. They, they, they knew that this was God's work and not theirs. They didn't uh, call in some people to teach them seminars and advertising. They didn't set up calendar events that would draw a crowd. They didn't ask, how can we entertain people and make this a, a great place where everybody wants to come? They prayed. Griffith Thomas writes, surely this is one of the greatest and most urgent needs, more prayer. Individual and united supplication and intercession, thus and only thus shall our place be shaken, our lives filled with the Holy Ghost, and the word of God be spoken in our generation with boldness. The church must be involved in prayer. Third, the church should be made up of people who are spirit-filled. As we go on in Acts 4.31, it says, And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. The initial work of the Holy Spirit in the life of anyone is at salvation. It's called the baptism of the Spirit. That took place in Acts 2 at Pentecost. For these, John said in John 14, that the, the Spirit dwelleth with you, and he shall be in you. So this is a transitional time of what the Holy Spirit was doing. But this baptism of the Spirit takes place today as soon as you put your faith in Christ Jesus as your personal Savior. You're immediately baptized or identified into the body of Christ, spiritually. Water baptism is an outward sign of that event, that spiritual baptism that's taken place. Baptism of the Spirit and filling of the Spirit are not the same. Baptism happens once. Filling happens several times after salvation. Are you looking to the Lord each day to have him fill you with his Spirit? That comes when you empty yourself of self. It's God's work again. You might say, well, how do I know if I'm filled with the Spirit or not? Well, there are other passages of, of Scripture, the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, and 23. Those are obvious evidences that you're filled with the Spirit of God, that he's producing those fruit in your life. But here in this context, there is this boldness that people had when they were Spirit-filled to tell others about Christ. And so when the Spirit of God is filling you, you'll have this powerful witness to others of the saving grace of Jesus Christ. They prayed for boldness to speak God's word. As a result of that prayer, God filled them with the Holy Spirit. And when he did, then they boldly proclaimed the word of God. The church today does not need new methods. We need new motivation. The church does not need new programs. It needs more prayer. We need a filling of God's spirit. And so this third characteristic of the church should be made of people who are spirit-filled. Fourth, the church has members who are bold in their witness for Christ. We see that in the end of verse 31. And they spake the word of God with boldness. Again, we can't rely on our power of persuasion to bring a person to Christ. We can't rely 
on the fact that we are likable people. And most of you, I say most because I, I'm including myself in the group, most of you are likable people. You have winsome personalities. You're fun to be around. But we can't rely on our personalities to do the work of God. We must rely on the word of God. That's where the power of the gospel is found. Speak the word of God with boldness. Let's look back at the boldness these men had when they were arrested and detained. If you'll go back up in chapter 4 to verses 12 and 13. Peter is preaching, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men. And they marveled, and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. Unlearned and ignorant. They, were, they had not been taught in, by, the, by the rabbis of the day. They were just normal, ordinary men. But they had been with Christ. And that's what makes the difference. They were bold in their witness for Christ. Because they had been with Christ. How did they, or what did they do, these, these uh, Sadducees, when they saw Peter and John's boldness? They questioned them, and they said, by what authority do you do these things? This, this healing of the lame man, this preaching of the resurrection. And Peter and John answered, and this was in chapter 4, verse 7, and in 4.10, they answered that it was in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, and they didn't hold back. They said, whom ye crucified. That's boldness. Jesus Christ was the one who authorized them with this message. They didn't need anyone else's authority. They couldn't deny the, that this miracle had taken place on the steps of the temple at the gate. And God had healed this lame man through the hands of the apostles. So look what they did in, in verse 18. And they called them and commanded them not to speak at all or teach in the name of Jesus. The response of the apostles to that, that commandment, is in verses 19 and 20. And what do they say? Basically, we have to. We cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So verse 21, what can the, the, the council do? They further threatened them, and they let them go, finding nothing how they might punish them. Because of the people, for all men glorified God for that which was done. And what was the response of the apostles? We see in verses 24 through 28 this wonderful section of their praise and, and blessing and giving God the glory for all that he's done through Israel. And in verse 29, it says, And now, Lord, behold their threatenings and grant unto thy servants that with what? All boldness they may speak thy word. That's what led up to Acts 4.31c. And they spake the word of God with boldness. They prayed for boldness. God filled them with the Holy Spirit. They preached with boldness. And he will answer our prayers as well if we ask him to help us to be bolder in our witness for Jesus. Fourth characteristics, they were bold in their witness for Christ. The fifth, the church has always been made up of people who care for each other. Notice, uh, this can be seen, I think, in, in three descriptive terms. First of all, there was unity, and we'll, we'll continue on in chapter 4, verse 32a. And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. So there's this unity. 
and then we'll see an unselfishness and then a generosity. But look at the unity. The, the early church was united in Christ. The multitude, many, were of one heart. The heart represents their thoughts, their feelings. And one soul, that is their life, their breath. The phrase that we have in the United States of America, e pluribus unum, which is Latin, was first used in 1776 as the motto in the great seal of the United States. It means out of many, one. And it was used to show a nation, one nation, made up of several states. The unity that God creates by placing every believer into the body of Christ is a greater unity than any human efforts to unite people. We're united in love because we submit to the one person who's the head of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ. And when there is disunity, it's because we're not in submission to the head. Unity was based on their faith in Christ. They were bound by one common cord. What bound them together? They all, what? Believed. They were believers. They were Christians. And that united them. So there was unity. They cared for each other because they were united. They were also unselfish. Verse 32, the second portion, B. Neither said any of them that all the things which he possessed was his own. No one claimed anything as his own. Now, they still possessed things. The word here for possessions describes properties, goods, substance. This was not a willful surrender of all property. This was not a vow of poverty. They were just recognizing that everything they had was God's. It was just on loan to them. It all belongs to him, and we need to recognize that. We're stewards of everything we possess because what we have is God's. So there's unselfishness. There's a generosity in the next phrase, but they had all things common. Again, this generosity was, was willing, it was voluntary. We contrasted this last week with what is known as socialism or communism, where it's forced sharing. This was voluntary. They still had houses in Acts 12.12, 12, it talks about the house of Mary, John Mark's mother, where the church gathered to pray for Peter, who was in prison. So she still had her house. She possessed that, and she owned it. The tense of the verbs here uh, indicates a continuous action. They were selling. They were bringing. They were distributing. They had a voice in how it was used. That voice was heard in Acts chapter 6, when some of the widows were being neglected in the daily giving out of the, of the financial needs and the foods. So they were generous. Uh, generosity was out of love and according to their need. John, 1 John 3.17 says, But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? William MacDonald writes this, it seems that when God finds people who are willing to turn their possessions over to him, he gives their testimony a remarkable attractiveness and force. And that's what happened in those early days of the church. You know that it would be a characteristic of our church that we would care for one another. Sixth, the church draws attention to the great work of our great God. Verse 33 
and with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Great power. Again, they didn't rely on their own strength. This power was God-given. Remember Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. That was what was chronologically taking place. And so this great power was not theirs. It was God's. The power was given for the purpose of being a witness for Christ. God doesn't give his power to you for any other reason than for you to be a testimony of who he is. Witnessing meant being willing to die for the faith. The word for witness in the Greek is martyreo. We get our word martyr from that. It's a, it's a witness that's like a, a deathbed testimony. One who will die for the sake of Christ. Witnessing is all about Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what the Sanhedrin told him not to do. You can't preach that way anymore. Great power. Another evidence that the church drew attention to was, was God's great grace. Verse 33 ends, and great grace was upon them all. You never say enough about God's grace. So many of our hymns include it as a theme. Grace is unmerited favor of God, simply. It's God's grace that saves us. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 for by grace are you saved through faith, and not, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. God's grace not only saves us, it teaches us how to live correctly. Titus 2, 11 and 12. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us. There's a negative and a positive in this instruction. Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts. That's what grace does. It just doesn't save you and leave you there. It teaches you to deny some things. And then the positive, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. And when the readers of the first epistle read, read this, or when Acts was read, it said in this present world. And you know what it says today? In this present world. It's still true today, or in Titus. Grace teaches us. It also equips us to serve God. Paul tells us in Ephesians 3.7 that he was made a minister of the gospel according to the gift of grace that God had given him by the effectual working of his power. He says in the next chapter, chapter 4, verse 7 of Ephesians, but unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. And so not only did he have a gift to do what God had called him to do, every one of us has been gifted to do something for Christ. Your spiritual gift. It equips you to serve God. So grace, unmerited favor. Grace is also a beauty that's bestowed, that radiates the goodness of God. And as other people see you, are you graceful? Are you full of grace? You say, no, I'm all thumbs or I can't walk in a straight line. That, we're not talking about the grace. God's graciousness. It's that attractiveness in your life because you've been redeemed. You've been transformed. God gives you that. That was upon them. Great grace was upon them all. Look at how it's described. Great grace. Megas. It has to do with either size or strength. And there is no limit to the amount of God's grace. There's enough to meet your needs. 
And there's no limit to the, to the power of God's grace. It's strong enough to accomplish what God wants to accomplish in your life. This grace came down from above and rested upon them. That tells me it had a source. Grace's source is always God. It came from him. He's the only one who can dispense this grace because it's his. To whom did this grace flow? God's grace was upon them all. Everyone in the church was a beneficiary of this unmerited favor. Not just the apostles. God doesn't just withhold his grace until you reach some spiritual status and then he'll pour it out into your life. No, he gives it and gives it. It's unmerited. It's unlimited. So the church is a place that displays his great power and grace. Last, the church is a place made of, pe of people who share. Verses 34 and 35. Neither was there any among them that lacked, for as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the prices of the things that were sold and laid them down at the apostles' feet, and distribution was made unto every man according as he, has need, as he had need. The result of the sharing was that no one lacked. The reason they had enough to share, people were selling houses and lands. Now, they owned them. They're called the possessors of lands and houses. This, remember, at Pentecost was just after the year of Jubilee. Every 50 years, property would go back to the original owner. That would mean that the property value at this particular time in history was the highest that it would be. It would be at its peak. The reason an investor could buy a piece of property and it would be his to use for the next 50 years until by the year of Jubilee it would go back to the owner. And so he has 50 years. Uh, so that's, it's, it's, if, he had, if it was two years before the year of Jubilee, he'd only have two years to use that land. So property values were high. They sold them, houses, lands. The verb tense, again, speaks of action that took place here on occasion. Not, everybody didn't put their house on the market and sell everything and bring it in. When a need came up, somebody stepped forward and supplied for that lack. They brought the proceeds to the apostles. It's different than what's we're talking about giving today. And distribution was made to every man. Some believers in Jerusalem were losing their jobs because of their stand for Christ. Some had come from distances to Jerusalem at the Pentecost, and they wanted to stay there under the teaching of the apostles. They were probably running low on funds. So the gift was according to each need. Great characteristics of the early church. What a great beginning when thousands upon thousands were members of that new body of Christ in Jerusalem. And as they broke into smaller groups and met in homes, their faith grew, their witness spread, God's work continued. Are these basics of the early church evident here at Grace Baptist Church? The best way to answer that is to look at yourself and say, are they evident in my life? Are you facing opposition because of your stand for Jesus Christ? Do you pray? Are you filled with God's Holy Spirit? Are you witnessing with boldness? Do you look for other ways to help brothers and sisters in Christ who have needs? 
Does your life draw attention to the greatness to the, of God, of his grace? Do you share what God has given you with others? The answer to any of these questions is no, or not what it should be. Now's the, now's the time to start living like God designed the church to live. Let's, with his help, be the kind of church that this church in the first century was. And let's expect to see God do great things through his work. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the example that this church provides for us. And now I pray that in this uh, closing hymn, you'll give us a time to reflect on our own lives and see how we're investing our lives, see how we're living them, whether or not we're surrendering everything to you for your filling and for your use. I pray that you'll have your way in each heart today. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.